Ephesians chapter 1. As I mentioned in the prayer, this is the beginning of a series we're doing that are examining kind of what it means to be a member at Providence Community Church. So in some respects, this is kind of vision casting month at Providence this July. Um, but really, we're not going to be saying anything new for those of you that are long-term members at Providence. We're not going to be saying anything new that you haven't heard many times before. But we probably are, with this new membership material, saying things in a new way. Um, and I think there, there are probably two new, uh, new approaches in this that I want you to be aware of. The first is just that most of the time when, when you walk with, perspect- with people that are interested in joining your church through membership material, you do that in kind of a topical way. You say, well, the Bible talks about elders, and here's elders, and here's 1 Timothy 3, and so on and so forth. So one of the things that we're doing that's different is we're actually just going to work our way through the book of Ephesians over the next four weeks and see in the book of Ephesians sort of God's vision for the local church. And and number two, probably one of the most unique things about this material is that it is built around uh, something called affirmations and denials or affirmations and negations. And, and what that means is, have you guys ever seen those series of books called Eat This, Not That? I mean, I, I spent a little bit of time in the diet section of the bookstore, so maybe it was only me, but, but uh, Eat This, Not That, that's affirmation and negation. It's not just, this is what we are, but this is also what we're not. Or it's not just, this is what we're for, but this is what we're not for. And this is a very helpful way of communicating, especially in areas of controversy, for instance, uh, together for the gospel conference, they put their uh, statement of faith together in an in a, in a affirmation and denial kind of format. So they said something like this. They said, we affirm that salvation comes to those who truly believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is awesome. That's a great affirmative statement to make, a great positive statement to make. The thing is, one could say, well, that's true. And there are other ways of salvation right? There are other ways. Jesus is a way of salvation, but there are other ways. So their document that kind of presents what they believe not only does affirmations, but also denials. And so they don't only say, we believe that, 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 we believe that those who truly confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord will be saved. But then they say, we deny that there is salvation in any other name, or that saving faith can take any form other than conscious belief in the Lord Jesus Christ in his saving acts. This is a very biblical way of communicating. It's a way aimed at precision. So God not only tells us in his word what he's like, but he also tells us what he is not like. Uh, God not only tells us in the word who we are, but he also tells us who we are not. And not only does he tell us what to do, but he tells us what not to do. So this format of this membership material is new for us. It's the first time we've done it this way. But we're doing it because simply stating, especially in these times, simply stating what you are for does not necessarily provide sufficient clarity for what you're really about. So for instance, I could say, we're all about love here. Well, every church would say that, right? Like literally every church and every Kiwanis club and every PTA meeting, like everybody's for love. But then when you say, and by the way, we don't believe this is love, or we don't believe that is love, well, now we're getting somewhere. 
Now we're making some clarifications that will actually help you to know what we actually believe. So there's these series of affirmations and denials that we'll work through over the next four weeks through the book of Ephesians. And the first one, the one for today, rooted in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, is we are a God-centered church. It's the affirmation. And the denial is, though we aspire to love all people well, we are not a man-centered church. So we are a God-centered church. Though we aspire to love all people well, we are not a man-centered church. Now let's see where that, how that emerges from our text, beginning in verse 1. Read along with me silently in Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him... Verse 11 states, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So verses 1 through 11, believe it or not, is one single long run-on sentence. Paul, uh, Paul usually dictated his letters to someone who would write them down. And so what we have as an inference in this particular moment is that Paul didn't take a breath. There wasn't a pause worthy of a period. This is all Paul you know, issuing wave after wave after wave of praise to God for all sorts of things. You know, my little brother and I had very different approaches to Legos. Uh, and I thought he was nuts. And then I learned that most, a lot of people were like him. I had, we had our own separate Legos. I had a bucket of Legos. And I would just go on the floor, sit down, and build stuff. He would take the Legos out of the particular box that it came in, build the thing on the cover of the box, and set it on a shelf, and that was that. And then he would play with that thing as a toy. And I, just, like, I literally thought my brother was a mutant for doing that at the time. It was so much fun, though, just to go whoosh, dump it out. Let's figure out what we're building today. Well, in many respects, this one long run-on sentence is Paul's Lego dumping onto the floor, and everything else that happens in the book of Ephesians is built out of the blocks that he lays out in these first 
11 verses. And the main thing that you can't escape when you read this is there's a whole lot of God (laughs) in this particular section, and that has to do with our affirmation. We are a God-centered church. Uh, God the Father appears as the subject of of nearly every verb in verses 3 through 10. So this is something to remember. We're going to get back to this in a minute. God the Father is the subject of nearly every verb in verses 3 through 10. Blessed, chose, predestined, bestowed, lavished, made known, accomplishes. God is doing all these things. And then there are a bunch of nouns to which God's name is tied. God's love, God's grace, God's will, God's purpose, God's plan. And then we can talk about Jesus. In the first 14 verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned either by name or title or that all-important pronoun no fewer than 15 times. So there's just a ton of God in this passage. And you might look at this passage and think, why would we ever need to say that we are a God-centered church and we are not a man-centered church? Which gets us to this denial. We are not a man-centered church. Why would we need to say that? Well, because a subtle shift can take place just simply from misreading our Bibles. For instance, when you look at this text, you see a lot of God, you see a lot of Jesus, but there's also a whole lot of us. Our Lord blessed us in Christ. He chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption. He blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses. He lavished upon us making known to us the mystery of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and so on and so forth. At least 17 references to us in this passage. So the idea, the true idea, is that we are the object of a great many blessings. And as we saw a minute ago, God is the subject of nearly every verb in the passage. God's doing all of this. We are the object. We're we're the recipient of all of these things. And here's something that actually happens pretty predictably in churches. Slowly over time, while still remaining very much in the Bible, a church can shift from being a subject-centered church to an object-centered church. The emphasis can shift from being a church which is about God and Jesus to a church which is about us. And that's a real thing, believe it or not. It's not only, it's not hard to believe that, in fact. This is the trajectory of our sinful flesh. To take the the, the gift and exalt it above the giver. To take the creation and exalt it above the creator. This is the thing we do in our flesh, is we make the object the subject of our lives. Uh, Leslie Newbegin is a missionary and writer, and he said it just so well. This was something that occurred to him as he was sorting through kind of how he was going to share the gospel in India. He said this, I suddenly saw that someone could use all of the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally the self, my need of salvation. And God is auxiliary to that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip 
can become centered in me and my need for salvation and not in the glory of God. This is, this is actually not a surprising thing to find because this is the basic response we have in our sin to the goodness of God. J.I. Packer, back in the 1950s, wrote the introduction for the new release of John Owen's The Death of Death. And in that, in that introduction, he talks about this idea that a new gospel has emerged, which is man-centered, and it has eclipsed the old gospel, which was God-centered. And he says this, Whereas the chief aim of the old gospel was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. This is 1950s when he wrote this. The subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. Unfortunately, many churches left Packer's warnings in the 1950s unheeded. In 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith published his findings from interviewing 3,000 supposedly Christian teenagers about their belief in God. Can you imagine interviewing 3,000 teenagers? So he interviewed 3,000 teenagers about their belief in God. And he wound up saying that this is the consistent sort of five pillars of what they believe. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. And he summarized all of that under a term, and he said, that's not Christianity. He said that is, and this is the term he used, moral therapeutic deism. This isn't Christianity. This is something called moral therapeutic deism. Another study uh, conducted at similar time reached a similar conclusion, and its author said this, the problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that they are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what they really believe, what we really believe, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. So those teenagers in the 2000, 2005 are now in their late 20s and 30s, and, and some of them attend Providence Community Church. And when you talk to them about what they were saved from, what way of thinking, what approach to life were you saved from? What, was the, what were the big lies that you had to get straight so that you could put your faith in Jesus? These are the lies. These are the lies, almost universally, not only of those in their 20s and 30s, but really probably everybody here who has been saved was saved out of some version of moral therapeutic deism. So here's one important, one important element of a church which is aggressively seeking to make Jesus known and a church which is, is okay saying this is what we're for and this is what we're against. Every church in every age or in every city has a primary competitor. And that primary competitor is not another local church. The primary competitor is some idea 
which presents itself against the truth of the gospel. And every church in every age has had one of those things. They're always some version of man-centered religion. In Ephesus, their primary competitor, this was a hard one, their primary competitor was the temple to Diana. And it was a man-centered religion. So what is Providence Community Church's primary competitor? Is it, is it the Baptist church down the road? Is it, is, is it the mega church down the road? No, our primary competitor is this moral therapeutic deism that lies to human beings saying you are the star of the story and your performance is what dictates your capacity for happiness. You know, when we talk to people in this church who were saved out of moral therapeutic deism, there's a sweet relief that occurs when you realize I'm not the star of the story. my, My job is to not be happy all the time. My job is to actually just kind of forget about myself as much as possible. This is a key part of the gospel that we have to bring into the world today. We get to be a church that is God-centered and not man-centered and offers a generation of weary and depressed and self-disappointed people the sweet relief of saying, good news, you're not the star of the story. That's, that's what's at stake. When we, make this quest, when we make this determination, we want to be a God-centered people and not a man-centered people. That's what's at stake. Let's talk about three strategies that we are intentionally engaging in to make this so. And the first strategy is just to make sure that we have and are raising up Christ-centered leaders. In, in verse 12 of our text, you see a hint at leadership there. It says, so that we who were first the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So it's we who were the first to hope in Christ, and you also. There's a, there's a lead, and there's a follow. Paul was the first to hope in Christ in this situation, brought the gospel to Ephesus, and they followed. But what we're talking about here with Christ-centered leaders is just super evident in verse 1, where it says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That is not a throwaway line. Uh, When I read a letter from someone, I don't really pay a lot of attention to what they say, the first two words, of course. You know, dear Chris, dearest Chris. I guess I might notice, I guess I might notice that. But you always want to pay attention to the first line in a letter to the churches. And this line is of central importance to the health of This local church, Ephesus, and to the health of any other local church, you simply cannot overstate the importance of having God-centered leadership in a local church. And that is not, that is not a self-congratulatory statement, because my next statement is this, and you simply cannot assume that leaders are looking where they need to look. The temptation for leaders to look to and live for and find their identity in something other than Christ is huge. Paul himself 
knew that he wasn't entirely immune to this. At the end of this letter to the, to the Ephesians, he says in, in chapter 6, verse 19, that Paul's in prison for the gospel. You'd think, you'd think he'd have this whole fear of man thing licked. But he says this in verse 19 in chapter 6. Also for me, say pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He knows that he actually isn't immune from this temptation for he as a leader to look somewhere else for his approval, to seek the approval of someone else. I, I want to sensitize us not only as a church but also new members to this because this is really, really a fundamental ministry of the membership of a local church. Churches need leaders, but leaders need churches who keep asking, how's your vision today? Are you looking at Christ? And who keep praying, Lord, help this man, help this man find his identity in Jesus. And I want to sensitize you to sort of like, what, how would we know we're going off the rails there? How would you know? Well, I think you could talk about this in forever, like all the symptoms of a leader who's looking elsewhere. But I just want to throw this out to you as one thing to be aware of. It seems that man-pleasing leadership, even in the Bible, can orient itself in two different groups. So the first you would have is uh, man-centered leadership that is aimed at keeping his existing congregation happy. Okay? And the second is you would have man-centered leadership that is aimed at wooing outsiders to making outsiders happy. Okay? Both of those things, loving the members of a church and loving the outsiders, are fundamental commandments for all of us. But what you might look for is... Is my leader basically motivated by one of these two things? Are his decisions, do the, is it possible that his decisions are being made out of a desire to make his congregation happy with him? Or is it possible that his decisions are being made out of a desire to, to, to make outsiders happy with him? These are things to look for. So on the one hand, you might have, the, 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 the long-term consequence of one of those is you might have a pastor who developed something like what we, what we might call a seeker-driven church. His whole kind of identity is tied in with, how do I make people out there like me or like us? And then the other way is, is that a pastor might, who has his, his desire to make his people like him, is to just become very ingrown and custom-built to existing members and so on and so forth. During times of dramatic crisis in local churches, where a leader is looking for his approval comes into sharp focus. So in 2020, we had this crisis that hit basically every local church in similar ways. And there were three places as a leader you could look. You could ask, how do I process this to keep my people happy? How do I process this to make outsiders okay with me? Or how do I process this to seek the Lord's approval? 
that, that, there are moments when, when that really comes into fore. Now, one of the great things is about this commitment to raise up leaders that are like Paul is, is that you're not going to find anybody in the Bible who loved people as much as Paul. You're not going to find anyone in the Bible who loved his church more than Paul. You're not going to find anyone in the Bible who loved outsiders as much as Paul. So if you love Jesus and you have your identity in him, then you'll love other people well. But one of our strategies is to make sure that our leaders are indeed Christ-centered. And to be honest, sometimes that looks like, hey, you know, you're, you're doing something that I don't necessarily agree with, but just so long, I just want to make sure, are you sure that's what you think God wants? That, could, that can be a tremendous help in, in the process of, of, of a congregation caring for and raising up leaders. So number two, our second strategy is to emphasize this phrase, in Christ, which appears 11 times in the section of Scripture, and it is a favorite phrase of Paul. He uses it over 200 times in his epistles. And theologians have really struggled with how to best understand what Paul means when he uses the phrase. What does he mean when he says, in Christ? Now, here's the thing. It honestly appears that he means different things that are all kind of the same, but he means slightly different things. Say, for when he uses in Christ in the early parts of Romans, in contrasting being in Christ with in Adam, and what he means when he talks about in Christ here. Now, I want to give you what I think is Paul's explanation for what he means by in Christ in Ephesians, and I want, <laughs> I want you to worship the Lord with me as I share this. So uh, I think when Paul's talking about being in Christ in the book of Ephesians, he is paralleling the ba- one of the basic plot lines of the Old Testament. The most tangible consequence of sin, original sin, was expulsion from a place. Are you with me? The most tangible and immediate consequence, well, I guess naked shame was probably first, but one of the most tangible, immediate consequences of original sin was you got kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. From that point forward, place figures heavily into everything in the Old Testament. We get to Genesis 12, and the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So this launches, uh, Genesis 12, launches what I'll call a location-based drama that, 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 that takes over the whole Old Testament. And the basic question of every, every book in the Old Testament, in some way or another, seems to be whether or not God's people will be allowed to live in the land that he has given them. And all of that, I think the Bible teaches rather explicitly, was a foreshadowing of what Paul is describing here. The promised land was a shadow, and Jesus and his kingdom are the substance of that shadow. And Abraham knew this. In Hebrews 11.10, it says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the other saints knew this. It says in 11.16 in Hebrews, but as it is, they desire a better country, That is a heavenly one. 
So what does Paul mean when he talks about being placed in Christ? Well, I think to understand that, you have to understand this location-driven drama that unfolds in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament saints like Moses and David saw that drama as a foreshadowing of a future Messiah, a future person who would bring locative redemption, let's say, with him. There's a, there's a guy that, who wrote a, a book, pretty good book, called Christ in the Covenants. It's Old Palmer Robertson. And, and he, he says this, the possession of the land under the Old Covenant was not an end to itself, but fit instead among the shadows, types, and prophecies that were characteristic in the Old Covenant and in its presentation of redemptive truth. Just as the tabernacle was never intended to be a settled item in the plan of redemption, but was to point to Christ tabernacling among them, just as the sacrificial system could never atone for sins, but could only foreshadow the offering of the Son of God, so in a similar manner, Abraham received the promise of the land but never experienced the blessing of its full possession. In this way, the patriarch learned to look forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Another commentator says, like, says it this way, Abraham could see the true significance of the land blessing, and he realized this place isn't the real possession. It's just an illustrated sermon of the great blessing to come. Abraham grasped the true meaning of the promised land. He knew Canaan represented the coming Messiah. In fact, Jesus says in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So my sense of what, Christ, what Paul means when he talks about in Christ is that he is saying we are located in Christ as the Jews were located in the promised land. In fact, I think, it's, I think it gets more and more clear as you work your way through Ephesians and you see all of this building language, this, this temple language that's used throughout. But even in the first chapter, Paul uses this phrase, inheritance. And he uses, he uses it, in a lot, and Peter uses it. It's, it's kind of common in the New Testament epistles. Look at verse 11. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Well, all the first six books of the Old Testament basically always use the word inheritance to mean the land. Right? In fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 26 where it says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, now, that's almost exact parallel with what Paul says in Ephesians 1.14, where he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In the book of Joshua alone, the word inheritance is used 59 times. It's almost always referring to the allotment of land to the tribes of Israel. Okay, that was pretty Bible nerdy. What's the point? If you think of being in Christ as a parallel to being placed in the promised land, the richness and blessing of being in Christ really sharpens up quite a bit. This idea that you have, if you're a Christian, been relocated 
into Christ. This is a fundamentally glorious idea. Uh, Ephesians 1, 6 says it this way, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It begins by praising God that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So I, I think this is maybe the, one of the easiest ways to distinguish between God-centered and man-centered. A man-centered version of this imagines God as this mighty waterfall of blessings. And somehow, through some kind of physics thing, I don't know, he, 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 he rotates that waterfall full of blessings on you. And then you, he's, another waterfall rotates it on you. So it's like this, it's like God has all of these blessings and he moves them to you, he moves them to this person, he moves them to that person. The God-centered view is, biblical view, and that is, is no, God's blessings fall on his beloved son. All of the Father's love, all of the Father's grace, all of the Father's joy, the waterfall picture's fine. It's a waterfall. It's falling, and it doesn't move. And the spot it lands on, and the spot it will always land on, is Jesus Christ. All of God's pleasure, all of his joy, all of his, all of his honor falls in one spot, on Jesus Christ. And you have been moved into that spot. That's a God-centered picture of the gospel, and it's what I think Paul is talking about when he says, you are in him 11 times in 13 verses or whatever. What he's saying is, is that miraculously, unbelievably, God has taken human beings who are sinners and he has placed them in the one spot where all of his love and affection and joy hits day after day after day in limitless supply. And that is on Christ. He has placed you on in Christ. So this idea that you have been placed or blessed in the beloved. Now remember how God speaks of his son during the baptism of Jesus. He says, what? This is my son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's where God's love goes. That's where God's affection goes. That's where, that's where the Father's joy goes. And he hasn't turned that to you or to me or to everyone else. No, he's picked us up by the scruff of our neck and put us in the most beautiful place that exists in the universe. And I just want to talk about the implications of this and why this makes us God-centered and even more specifically Christ-centered. This is the most choice piece of real estate in the universe. The bottom of this waterfall, it's the most choice piece of real estate in the universe. When God promised the Old Testament people a land flowing with milk and honey, he was foreshadowing another place, a spiritual place, that he would put his people that is far more glorious, far more fruitful, and that is Christ. Jesus Christ is the most choice place to be in all of the universe. It is also a location full of unmerited favor. One distinction of the Old Testament promised land stories was that they, they were to enter a place with vineyards that they did not plant. 
and wells that they did not dig. Well, again, a foreshadowing of something much greater. When we are placed in Christ, we become occupants of a land that is full of all of the blessings of God, blessings that we had nothing to do with constructing. Indeed, we, we could never construct the basic blessings that we, we need. Another implication, we did not get here by our wits. Another distinctive of the Old Testament promised land narrative is that their entrance into the promised land was entirely, always, every time, a work of God. Jericho did not fall because of Jewish strength. The land was full of giants and well-fortified cities. And their exit from Egypt and their entrance into the promised land was due entirely to the work of God. Again, a parallel to our being placed in Christ. We did not put ourselves there. We were unable to release ourselves from the slavery of sin, much less enter into the promised land of Jesus Christ. So if you're new to providence and will sometimes reference God's sovereignty and salvation, or maybe just the shorthand, reformed theologies, like what do we mean by that? That comes up from time to time. What we mean is, is that, and we'll see this when we go to chapter 2 next week, what we mean is, is that we simply could not place ourselves in Christ and that God alone had to do that for us. Just as God alone, only God could take a small group of Jews in the Old Testament and cause them to overtake an entire land and defeat enemies far outside, far bigger than them, and so forth. So God has taken us into a place we could never have gotten alone. And maybe you can start to feel like why that means God-centeredness and why God-centeredness is implied from that. Well, the third implication is, is that we have to, or the third strategy is we have uh, to help each other grasp what we have in Christ. Here's the deal. We live in the most, the most blessed space that exists. We live at the base of God's full love, full esteem. And that means we are all richer than we know. If you are in Christ, your fundamental problem is accounting. You just have more than you can understand. You just have you just have more than you can count. And so one of the functions of a local church walking together is to say, let me, let me help you. Let me help you count the blessings of God. Let me help you, let me help you do a better job of measuring the immeasurable riches of Christ. One of our basic jobs is, I think, is, I think is to is to do something similar to what. Jefferson did, this is a good 4th of July illustration. I came up with it before I remembered this was July 4th. Uh, Jefferson buys this section of land called the Louisiana Purchase. He buys it from Napoleon, and there's really no clear idea of what all this encompasses. It would wind up encompassing Louisiana, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Oklahoma, most of Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and Minnesota. It's doubled the size of the United States with an $11 million purchase for this territory. Great. Thing is, no one really knows what's out there. So Jefferson writes a letter, and I read this, I read this letter this week, to a guy named uh, Meriwether Lewis. 
And he essentially tells Lewis, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into this land with an exposition, and I want you to figure out what we bought. I mean, I think we got a good deal. How good of a deal is going to depend a lot on what you find. So go out there and figure out what exactly we just bought. And, and what we see in verse 15 is, I think, Paul exercising the basic ministry of a church member, one for the other, and that is, I'm just going to try to help you through prayer and help you through conversation to figure out what it is all you have in Jesus Christ. I, I call this passage, verse 15 through 23, the Louisiana Purchase Prayer. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's the basic ministry? What's the basic thing we do for one another? We help one another understand, process, consider, walk in, live out of the incredible treasure that we have been given in Jesus Christ. In, in chapter 3, he says it again. And this time you really get the land elements. In chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, here's the, here's the, here's the spatial language, with all the states, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, we are a God-centered church. We are not a man-centered church, though we aspire to love men well. And it is our conviction that the way we love one another well, and the way we love the world well, is to help them to see the glorious riches of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us in the way that Paul wrote as he prayed for the Ephesians, that you would help us, Lord, to know even just a little bit more, Father, just more and more, that you would help us to know how incredibly blessed we are to be in Christ. God, please do a work that only your Spirit can do to help us, Lord, to see just how incredibly blessed we are to have been placed into the promise, Jesus Christ. And God, let us love one another well by, by doing what Paul's doing in Ephesians, not only praying for these people, but also communicating with them and saying over and over again, you're richer than you know. 
You're richer than you know. Over and over again, Lord, let us love one another that way. And Lord, let us speak to the world and say, you could be richer than you know. You could be richer than you know. You're aiming for this place, but there's a better place. You're aiming for this accomplishment, but there's something better. There's something way better, namely Jesus Christ. Lord, give us grace to do these things. Rejoice in you. The praise of your glory and grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this is the Lord's table where you walk up like a rich person. You get to, no. Jesus knew that we would have a fundamental accounting problem to process, to process his great blessings, all encapsulated in him giving himself to us to redeem us, to give us forgiveness from our many sins, and to welcome us over and over and over again into his open arms. And so he instituted this thing called Lord's Table that offers believers a chance repeatedly over and over and over again to rehearse these great truths and to do, in a sense, a little bit of weekly accounting. And so at approximately 11 a.m. every Sunday morning, we do a little weekly accounting where we say, this is how much Jesus has blessed me. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and partake of the Lord's table now.